but they're what? changing the versioning number though. Well, because there have there haven't been 2015 versions of ES right. since 2015. Oh, whoa. ES6 released in 2015 and 2015 plus ES6 equals 2021. Illuminati weird confirmed. Weird this is a weird synchronicity right there. <laughs> <laughs> Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is the Drunken UX Podcast. This is episode number 83, and we're going to be talking about how to get your JavaScript ready for ES 2021. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for sitting here with us for the next hour. I am your host, Michael Beenan. I'm your other other host, Aaron. How you doing, Michael? Doing well. Uh, doing doing nice. Uh, it's gonna be a good month. It's gonna be a good rest of the year. I'm 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 enthusiastic about it to the point that uh, I, I I I'm convinced that if you're as happy as I am and you're enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, you should run by our sponsors over at New Cloud. Check them out at newcloud.com/slash. Drunken UX. That's in ucloud.com slash drunken UX. Check out what they've got to offer in interactive mapping illustrations, their back-end CMS platform, and all that stuff. If you want to find us, check us out. You know you can get us on social media over at Twitter or Facebook at slash drunken UX, Instagram at slash drunken UX podcast, or in our chat room on Discord, drunkenux.com slash Discord. Hey, it's the end of February. Actually, is it the end of February? Uh, I think I think it's technically uh, the first. Actually, it's the first of March today. So um, I'm a little late on that. I because apologize. you're listening to this live. Congratulations! You're listening to this, yeah. We, when you we, when did... you hit pause, we'll still be live, but we will patiently wait for you to resume. Yeah, it's it's amazing how that works. We actually have a little light in front of us. Um, the problem is when multiple people pause at the same mm. time. No, no, we're pre-recorded for everyone else but you. You listener are the only person we're live for. What do you have to go with this evening? I have some teeling whiskey. This was another recommendation from our previous guest, Joel Goodman, and also my local friend, Irish. Mark Enbinder. Mark yeah, it's Irish whiskey. Um, it's Irish pretty good. Is, that's the one that comes in the, uh, like the clay pot, isn't it? Uh, no, it's, well, I mean, it's in like a weird, like a tin. It, it's in a, um, like, you know, like the, normally the scotch cylinders you get when you buy a spot of yeah, scotch. Yeah. It looks like one of those. Uh, but it's not scotch. It's Irish whiskey. Tullamore Dew. That's what I'm thinking of. Tullamore Dew comes in like a little, like a jug. Ooh. Like an, like an old school, like jug band. Like that's, uh, that's what it comes in. Um, tea. I was thinking tea. I'm doing something I said I was going to do at the start of the season. Um, and I put it off and then I wasn't feeling like heavy scotch or anything like that, but I'm, I'm around. It's time. I broke out the Glenfiddich Grand Cru. It is a 23-year-aged scotch in American and European oak, finished in uh, cuvee casks. Boy, this is a thing. It's got kind of a, on the nose, it's a little bit, little artificial banana, a little cedar, a little, uh, uh, maybe not a sandalwood, but like an, an oiled 
like walnut stock kind of smell. Little bit of cider, like an apple cider uh, smell to it on the nose. It's got a very bready taste, yeasty kind of taste to it. Um, vanilla. It's real good. <laughs> nice. Let's talk to get things started about an article that Nick Gard wrote over at UXDesign.cc. He says that it's time we say goodbye to pixel units. Thought he means units. Because, like, I feel like we really need pixels just in general. Well, I mean, everything has pixels, yes. For now. Right. Eventually. Who knows what the future holds? And arguably, we don't have pixels anymore. You know, we still talk about pixels, but monitors, a pixel has a defined width. Right. One pixel width. Well, yes. <laughs> it's like how a foot like isn't exactly a foot. It's like some people's foot. <laughs> Okay, that's not entirely a a bad metaphor. A pixel is usually regarded as about a quarter of a millimeter. Like that's but the thing is the pixel density of screens and the reason why like retina screens are a thing is I was gonna say retina. We yeah, we can actually you know, a physical pixel is now much smaller than a quarter millimeter. And so, you know, browsers and in turn monitors can actually render things smaller than a pixel. Um but the problem with pixels is they are based on a physical measurement, and that becomes problematic for a number of reasons. Um, Nick gets into many of these. He talks about accessibility. He talks about responsive design um, and how this impacts things, especially when you fix the size of something um, or if you're using um, the wrong kind of responsive measurements off those pixels, things won't scale properly. Um, that's all absolutely true. Um, I am a firm believer in the REM. That's the root, root oriented M width. Yes. Okay. So whereas an M is relative to your parent element only, Mm -hmm. a REM is relative to your root definition. So if you say, well, my base font is 16 pixels, then one rem is 16 pixels. Two rems is 32 pixels. That makes it really easy to make a responsive design that scales real elegantly um, with your site so that if somebody is zooming your page to make mm-hmm. it more readable, they're looking on it, at it on a mobile device versus their computer versus a laptop screen where they've got the browser at 50%. Rem right. allows things to scale very nicely in those environments. So what I just for my own uh reminding with REMs, the, the difference between REMs and a regular M is that since the REM is relative to the root width of a root M, then an M width normal is relative to like its parent. Yeah. So think so of that, it this that's way, why right? that's why it would be variable. If width. if you say my root font size is 16 pixels. Mm-hmm. And then in the header, or in the body, let's use the body. In the body, sure. my font size is one RAM. Body text mm-hmm. is 16 pixels. Cool. Sure. Uh, I want a block quote to be 
32 RAM. That's right. 32 pixels. Right. I want my site to be 1M. Well, that's okay. 32 pixels. Oh, site C-I-T-E. Yeah, C-I-T-E. Yeah. Right. And then if you had a strong tag within that site and you said you wanted it to be 1.5M, then that would be 1.5 times 32 pixels if it's inside the block quote, right? Right. Right. Okay. I remember we so talked about this with Instead the US, of it being 24 USWPS. pixels, it would be right. 40 pixels. Okay. No. No, that's not even right. See, even I'm getting wrong. It'd be 48 pixels. <laughs> we talked about this with the USWDS thing because they did their root font pixel size was 10 pixels, right? Oh, was it? that? That's right. It was pretty low, wasn't it? It, it was 10 pixels because it let you do things with REMS where you would say, like, if you want... It, it makes example, the math super easy. Yeah, if you want if you want a 16-pixel font, then you say it's, you know, 1.6 REMS. Um, like, and, and now I didn't think about it when you brought up the U.S. web design system before being based on a 10-pixel base. Mm-hmm. Now that I realize, oh, yeah, no, that just makes all your REM math super easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to do that. I'm literally, as we are recording this, I am midship in in uh, a redesign for the Drunken UX uh, website. I'm rewriting the theme from the ground up from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going, you know, I was going to do my normal thing and basically, well, I want everything 16 pixels, obviously. Um, but now that I think about that, I want to do it off 10 just to see how it affects everything. Yeah. Um, once I start doing my math then, because I do like that idea that, yeah, but now... If I look, because one thing I can't do is when I look at uh, some SAS and I see, you know, 3.625 RAMs. <laughs> right. How much is that? <laughs> how, yeah, like how many pixels is that then at a base size? I don't know. But 4.8 RAMs, if my base is 10, I know it's 48 pixels. I just know that. Like, that's incredibly useful. He's got some good examples in here m- mixed in, like, and I, I like... He was talking about clamped font sizes. Mm-hmm. We we talked about this recently about min, max, and clamp as, as CSS functions. Right. Um, and he's like, well, you know, should we use pixels inside of clamps? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no. <laughs> There's literally no reason to do that. And he's right. Um, and he's got a really good example of one where he does a, a clamp of 0.75 rams with a max of 1.375 rams, but his middle uh, measurement is 0.5 rams plus eight viewport width hmm. which is great because it means and, and let's use the the 10 right as yeah. your your base size so that means your base size is either seven and a half pixels or uh 13.75 pixels which is obviously still too small but for the sake of this math it'll work um but then through that middle you're saying it's five pixels plus Eight viewport, you know, eight percent of your viewport width. That's oh, okay. Okay, eight means eight percent. So whatever the width of your viewport is on your device, Mm -hmm. it's five pixels plus eight percent of that. Okay. So and that means as you scale, that middle range will scale up and down elegantly until it hits the minimum or the maximum clamp values. It's like the it's the perfect elastic font at that point. Boom, you've got this perfectly stretchy, scalable font. Um, great example. Mm-hmm. Run. Uh, he's over at uh, UXDesign.cc. Um, Nick Gard is the one who wrote this. It takes about four minutes to read it. 
Um, we'll have a link in the show notes to it, but go give it a read and think about, you know, how you're using pixels and relative units in your design. Okay, so today we are going to be talking about ES2021. This is ES2021 or ES12. Those are interchangeable. They're, they're both correct and accurate. 12th edition. Wait, but previous versions were things like you had just, just JavaScript, and then you had ECMA script, and then everybody kind of forgot about that for a while, except the purists. And then you had ES6. And everybody was gaga about the ES6. And then everybody kind of forgot ES6 about it. ES6 was huge. Yeah. I mean, ES6 arguably changed the entire future of JavaScript, period. But it had been four years since there was any kind of release. And it had been, uh, uh, God, six years since a meaningful release at that point. So um, ECMA is a company ECMA international Mm -hmm. is this company that's out there and they have put out a standard. They put out a standard that is now updated every year. Right? So we started with, yeah, ES six is the one that comes up a lot because in 2015, this big release happened, right? It was a huge update after, you know, six years of having no meaningful updates to, to the spec. They realized, Hey, we need to catch up. (laughs) That JavaScript is getting left behind. We're getting things like jQuery and stuff like this that is trying to fill all of these gaps because JavaScript can't do all of these different things. So ECMA caught up and said, "Hey, every June we're just going to release, you know, a new, uh, a new edition that mm-hmm. will have new features, new updates, and and new things in it." Okay. Um, they've they have a spec called ECMA two six two, which is the defines the way a programming language should operate, right? Okay. And that's sort of how we derive our JavaScript. Um, ECMAScript is a thing that exists, and JavaScript says, cool, we're going to implement that. It is designed to conform to the ECMAScript standard. Is that enough history lesson? <laughs> I think so. So what we've got is ECMA 2021 coming out. And so there's a few things. There's a lot of things that are going to be in it that are different, changed, refined, improved, all of that. Um, one that caught me off guard, real surprising to me, was they've added replace all. There's, there's now a, uh, a string method for replace all. Congratulations. <laughs> this is funny to me because I didn't realize there wasn't a replace all. <laughs> Like, it's one of those things that I've taken for granted in other languages, and I just don't think about a lot in JavaScript, I guess. And <laughs> I was like, that, I saw, you know, several of the articles were like, oh, yeah, you got replace all now. And I'm like, we didn't always have replace all? What we had was replace, obviously. There is a replace function. And you can do a global replace with it. It's just that mm-hmm. you have to use regex, a regular expression, to do it. And when you... Right write your regular expression, you include the backslash G uh, global flag, and that tells it to replace it everywhere. 
The thing right. is, a lot of people don't know regex real well. That's a shame. I uh, like I'm a reg, big regex fan, personally. Regex is frustrating as shit, and like it is. If you don't, if you aren't a big fan of puzzles, super annoying when you're first learning it. But man, after oh, how long has it been? Probably ten, at least ten or fifteen years of, of using them. Like I'm okay. I haven't studied them fully, and definitely not an expert or a master like some people I've seen. But they're fun. Like it's it's fun to try to like really define like what is the string actually like what really what are the components here. Um, so I I see this as a move that basically just is designed to bring some parity with other languages. Pretty mm-hmm. much every language has a replace all function. The other thing is um, I don't know this for a fact. But I would bet that when it comes down to especially large scale, like long page replacements, mm-hmm. replace all is probably going to be more performant than having to like initialize the regex engine in, in JavaScript. Hmm. I can't prove that. I don't know it for a fact. For all I know, replace all is using regex under the hood and it wouldn't matter one way or the other. But my instinct is that it probably is faster. We'll see. I mean, if they're if they're planning for it to be a replace all, then maybe they can optimize for it. Um, yeah, underneath or something. Yeah. I can see that. The next one is uh, promise dot any. So you're gonna have to like this is one of the concepts of JavaScript that I, I haven't quite fully grokked yet. So I need you to explain what is promise. What what promise? What what do promise? <laughs> what do promise? <laughs> what is this thing? Um, so you're you're familiar with asynchronous programming? Yeah, 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 yeah. This, like this the whole notion... basis of why why people use JavaScript in the first place. Right. Yeah. What a promise does is a promise is a function that or is a component of a function that says, "Hey, I'm gonna go do something." It may take a little while, but I promise you, I'm going to return something to you, either okay. a value or an error, but I'm going to send something back. This is the, the super common implementation of this is uh, with API type calls. If you have to call an API, especially a third party API, you don't necessarily have control over how quick that round trip will happen for that payload. So your code can depending on what you're doing you may say you know what i want this to just run and meanwhile let the rest of my code do other stuff or you may say you know what i'm going to make this function asynchronous but when i get to that promise to that call i want it to do what we call a wait Mm -hmm. exactly what it sounds like it's a pause it's a break point it just tells your javascript hey i gotta go do something hang tight don't don't move on without me and so it'll sit there and wait for whatever that promise is going to do. The promise is an agreement. The promise is a contract in your code that says, I'm coming back. And so it lets you do callbacks. Um, so what does all of this mean? And, and how does it relate to promise.any? So when you're writing JavaScript, synchronous or asynchronous, and you're doing things that require these outside calls, normally you're making one call and you're waiting on that one thing to happen and either it works or it doesn't. It's, you know, you have a try catch and if it catches an error, then it, 
you know, you do whatever you need to do. Dot any is similar to another function for promises called all settled. What that means is you can say, let's say you have three things that need to happen. Let's say you're you're making API calls to an image service like Flickr. And you have to you have to push the image, then you want to get the metadata, and then you want to uh, increment, you know, a number on an account, right? Mm-hmm. And you need all those things to happen. But you don't want to do anything until all three of those things are done. You could chain them. Uh... You could do one and then, dot then, do the next one. But then that one. makes it like synchronous though. But you lose. That's, yeah, that makes yeah. all of those calls synchronous. You want it to all happen at once because you want it to be faster. So, you so would if, use... you were to, if you were to do that now, you'd have to do like a variable to hold each return response and then like a, I don't even know, like a meta promise to check when all the variables have values. Well, what you would do now is use this all settled function. Okay. And you would say all settled Promise one, promise two, promise three. So here's the thing. All settled says, I'm going to make these three calls and I'm going to wait for all of them to be done, regardless of how they come out. They succeed or they fail, but it will wait for all of them to be done. And then you can move on and do whatever you want. Um, There is another one called race. Also kind of like it sounds. You give it your three functions and you say, and it, you call them in a dot race. And what it is, is it will continue once the first one comes back um, that is settled or rejected. What any okay. does is it says, I'm not looking for the first one regardless. I'm looking for the first one that succeeds. So if you have three functions and the second one is the fastest one and it comes back and it succeeds, then it continues at that point. Okay. Or it waits for all of them to fail and it throws a, an aggregate error. Oh, right. I gotcha. So I gotcha. it's basically filling in the gap. All settled, which is available now, that's in the standard already. All settled means mm-hmm. I need all of my promises to either succeed or fail, or some mix. Race All of means, my wishes must be fulfilled. Race means I need the first one. I don't care if it succeeded or failed. Right. Any says, I want the first one that succeeds. Or I want to know none of them succeeded. So any is a race, but with that additional condition of if they all don't succeed. It's, it's, yeah, it's a race to the finish line. Uh, whereas race is a race to fall over the hurdles first. I don't, <laughs> uh, okay. So, cause race doesn't care. Race just says, right. Hey, I got a, I got a, uh, a return back from your first promise, but it failed, but right. I got my response. So that was the first one to get back to me. And so I'm just going to go on now. What happens if. All the things in race fail. Uh, it doesn't matter because it will act on the first failure. If the other two fail, it doesn't care because it's already done at that. Oh, point. so so race takes the first outcome, first outcome, success, success or failure. Yes. Whereas any is the first one to succeed or or all fail. Failure if everyone fails 
and all settled is Once all of them done. done, regardless mm-hmm. of success or failure. Interesting. It's a, it's a little, it's a little wonky. Like once you get it locked in, it's pretty easy to remember. It's kind of a pretty special use case. Like this is the kind of thing you're using in a really dynamic web app or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's it's not intuitive, but I don't dislike it. It's the kind of thing that when you need it, you're going to be glad you have it. Certainly, I I know I know that I knock on JavaScript a lot, and I'm never taking anything I say back about it ever. But I will say that all the asynchronous stuff they do is pretty damn cool. And um, I know this is like for embedded systems, like with Node.js and stuff. But like even on the web, though, like the asynchronous stuff is pretty neat. It, it's definitely getting more feature complete. Is the way mm-hmm. I would look at it. Like. It's it's to the point where these things are are robust enough and and mature enough that you really can start doing a lot of flow control with uh, with your asynchronous code. For a normal web page, you're probably never going to use that, uh, and that's going to be true for some of these other ones. Like you just said, a lot of this starts to get into app building, embedded app building, things like that. Um, one that's just super cosmetic: um, you get numeric separators now. Hmm. That's nothing more than an underscore. Oh yeah, Ruby does that. If if you yeah. need to write, you know, a hundred trillion, mm-hmm. you can do a hundred underscore zero 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 underscore zero it's, zero. It's basically like a comment, like it's like an inline comment inside of the number. You're just you're just separating the digits, but it's meaningless otherwise. Yeah, it's like a comma, yeah. you know, yeah. or something like that. Like normally, you just type in numbers straight up. This is purely cosmetic it doesn't affect anything it doesn't change the value of the number in any way just makes it more readable Mm -hmm. um yeah honestly i kind of dig it like that's one of those things i don't do a lot of it's useful i don't do a lot of math-based stuff like that but it's certainly like if i'm setting constants for something imagine you're doing something with uh pi no the 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 way i use it a lot is when you're doing uh time time math you have to count seconds and you want to know like you know seconds in a day or time stuff like that yeah yeah, because you're dealing with numbers in the millions or billions, and so having the ch- having the stuff chunked off when, especially with a bunch of zeros in a row, is really handy. Yeah, 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 and, and it's, that's the thing, right? When you have a lot of zeros, a lot of nines, anything with like a string of numbers, you know, just they blur together after about a million. So mm-hmm. it's it it's weird the first few times you do it, but I, like it's worth it. I recommend. <laughs> internationalization has a couple new features one is list format this one's pretty simple Mm -hmm. you know i could maybe see it especially for logging or something like that what it is is it lets you join an array uh into a string in a locale safe manner so if you have an array one two three and you use a list format to join it you you can make it say one two and three if you do it as a conjunction, if you do it as a disjunction, it would be one, two, or three. If you did it in Spanish, it would be one, two, e three. Okay, all right. So when I in in Ruby, and I think you can do this in PHP also, load. But when you have like a collection of something and you want it to be comma separated, but you don't want to have a trailing comma, easiest way to do that is to like explode it into an array and then input it back with commas separating the values because it's easier to do it that way than to like do all this logic around ensuring there's no trailing comma or chomping it or whatever. 
Um, so I guess I could see how this would be useful for that. If you, you yeah, you could do it if you if you did it as style short and type unit. I got a grammar nerd question for you though. Does it have a setting for enabling or disabling the Oxford comma? No. <laughs> I I and legitimately the, don't know the answer to that. So I wonder if it has an opinion. I'm I'm assuming that it's a comma. It has a terminal comma or the uh, the penultimate t comma followed by the conjunction. Yeah, and then the final element. But that would be funny if they someone didn't want to use an Oxford comma. I I didn't see it in the signature for the method. So. <laughs> But I, I mean, it's, it's a fair the... question. It really is a fair question. <laughs> I wanted to go to the GitHub repo. And I was troll. <laughs> I was not prepared for that question. I, I think it's a fair one, though. Um, <laughs> similarly, we've got date style and time style now, which lets you pass a value to it for short, medium, or long. And so, like, short time style would be your hour, minute, AM, PM. A long time style would be hour, minute, second, AM, PM, and Zulu offset, GMT offset. Okay. Okay. Um, date style short is you know month, day, year slashes numbers ten. You know it'd be like what is oh, that's so nice three one twenty twenty one. Um, long style would be March first twenty twenty one, and similarly internationalized and all of that. So right. And of course, I mean, you can format a date in those ways, but this Manually, is... Manually, right? With a yeah. formatting string? Okay. And this gives you just the way of doing it short, medium, long with the internationalization. So take those as you may. Again, you're not going to use them a ton probably, but they're nice, especially if you do build stuff that is, you know, international sensitive. So um, use them if they're there, certainly. So let's talk programming, though. Let's get a little little denser. One of the big changes is that now classes support private methods and accessors. Okay. Like tr like traditional visibility or so there 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 are three type of methods, right? Yeah. Normally in in a class right now if you wrote a class in JavaScript um and built right. your constructor and got all that stuff done, every mm -hmm. function that you add to it is inherently a public function. Which, okay. which just means that you can call that function from any object reference. So if, okay. if you have a function called add and it adds one to one of your properties, then you can call add, you know, in your normal X dot add, you know, if you, if X is an instance of your object, X dot add will always add one, but maybe you don't want people doing that. Right. You know, maybe you're trying to do internal manipulation of something, you know, for other purposes. You don't want all of those things available. That's so when we talk about private, usually in most languages, a private method is one that is only accessible inside of that class. So it's used by like other functions. So maybe you have add and add is a public function, but add calls a private math function or something like that that you mm -hmm. created uh, and you don't want that exposed all you all that has to worry about is that the object uses it i don't know how does that compare to something like ruby with ruby it's weird 
So like by default, methods are public, just like in JavaScript. You can do protected and you can do private. The difference is that private methods can't call directly from the object itself via the dot thing. So if I have like an object called foo and I have a private method called like but, I can't do foo.but. However, you can indirectly call it by using the send method, which is public, and then passing it the a reference, like a, the name of the private method you want to call. And then the object will call that private method internally. So you have foo.send and then but as a symbol. And then it would it would let you call it. So it's not the visibility of a method is kind of like a like a social contract that the maintainers of the class have with anyone using the class where it says this is private if you choose to use this and you're going out of your way to use it jokes on you if we ever change it but it's there a lot of ruby is like that actually <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like javascript is going a more traditional route uh, yeah there's a really good article over at codewithjason.com that I'm going to have linked I love the way he, because he has that same uh, opinion, the way he defines like why you would want to use private methods in object-oriented code, I agree with totally, and I love how he breaks it down. One is to minimize an object's API, um, to sort of reduce the surface area of an object. So maybe your object has 20 methods in it, but only two of those need to actually be public. Only two of those are things that people should interface with. The others are all used internally to do things, you know, on the object or transform data or get information or or whatever. Um, so it lets you minimize that surface area so that when it comes time to document it for, you know, public stuff, you don't need to document all those other things for people. They only need to know about the two public methods that are in it. And you don't have to worry about them calling the other things inadvertently. The other part is that it makes your code safer to refactor. A public mm -hmm. method has a signature to it. And if right. you change that signature or you do something to that public method, you risk breaking everything that calls that public method. This is really dangerous if you make a library of some kind and want to make it available. Changing signatures is a big deal for that kind of stuff. Private methods you know, are only called and referenced within your object. So mm -hmm. if you need to refactor, anything that uses it is already right in front of you. And so you can, you know, change that if you need to. Um, now, I used a word there, signature. Mm -hmm. What What's a signature, Aaron? What does that mean to you? Uh, the, like, signature would include, like, the method name and then kind of, like, the argument list. Uh, and that really depends on if you're doing static type or duct type language. But in, in Ruby, it's typically like um, the signature would be the method name and then basically what kind of behavior you're looking for each of the elements. But in like C or something, it would be the method name and then types of the arguments in order. Yeah, it basically is all the stuff that makes the function go. You know, mm -hmm. you know, a function takes in certain parameters. It takes in certain, uh, uh, certain values and things like that, that are important. It also involves the return of it, right? 
if I've written a function that's designed to return, you know, a Boolean, oh, you know, yeah, true or false, yeah. and I change it to instead return a, an integer, I mean, that's that breaks people's code. That breaks other things. And so the signature is, you know, inclusive of, you know, your parameters, your returns. Um, if you go look at like the MDN docs, they'll tell you it should also, you know, it includes exceptions that get thrown. Basically, any of that sort of interaction surface of your function, anything that people will rely on or use information from. Um, so being able to define stuff as private is useful because it helps you remember, you know, what's safe, what isn't, and what can other people interface with. Ultimately, this is all just making JavaScript more object-oriented. So one of my favorite things, we're talking about method signatures. In PHP, there's the string positioning method, strpos. Yeah. And then there's also string replace, str underscore replace. In string, string positioning, the argument, the signature is, first argument is the haystack, second argument's the needle, third argument's the optional offset. But in string replace, first argument is the search, second argument is the replace, third argument is the haystack. So they completely reverse it. And this has been the signature for it for pretty much forever. Um, and like I, I can never remember the, the sequence of those <laughs> ever. I would always have to look it up. Um, such a pain in the ass. But like they can't change it, right? Like you'd have right. to come up with a totally new method called like better string replace or something. It's, it's kind of <laughs> like a fingerprint, you know? If I yeah. change my fingerprint, I'm not me. You know, if I go over to Aaron's house and, and murder his eyeballs and I left fingerprints all over that knife and then I change my fingerprints and they can't prove it was me. Uh, if you came over and then you left and then you changed your fingerprints and came back, I wouldn't know who you were. Yeah, I would be a totally different human being at that point. Um, I know people strictly through their fingerprints. Um, two more. Two more things. Um, the first one is weak references and finalizers. These go together, um, and these are really aimed at, in in my opinion, like the big app developers. You've got a huge dynamic web app. You're doing a lot of embedded programming. The uh, example I was told. Yeah, this is this is some weird stuff. This is when when Michael and I were doing pre-show. We were looking at this, and I was like, "This is really a weird concern to be worried about for like a website." <laughs> but. What I said was, yeah, it is. That's exactly right. You would never worry about this with a website. But if you're writing node applications to put on a Raspberry Pi Nano, well, you're going to be a little more concerned with the performance of your, your code and your application because that device doesn't have that much RAM on it. It doesn't have a lot of CPU power. You, this, this gets us back to this idea of, and I, I think about this a lot, you know, how concerned we used to have to be when we were writing code back in the nineties, you know, and mm -hmm. you know, even before that, even in the nineties, it was like a world different than in the eighties, you know, when people oh, had yeah. to worry about how much compute cycle you had, how much Ram you had access to. Back when, when, uh, yeah. So if you're, if you're a newer developer and by that, I mean, you've just gotten in development in the last, uh, 10, 15 years and you haven't explored a lot of older stuff. Um, you, the memory where you would store your data and the memory where you would store your program would be the same, like finite array of memory. 
and it was very small and you had to optimize the shit out of your program. So like, I know that there's that quote from Bill Gates, like 64K memory ought to be enough for anyone. But like, that was a lot at the time. And before that, it was like significantly less. I forget how much less, but the the memory registers were like really small. It goes all the way down, you know? Yeah. I mean, started with almost nothing. Um, yep. So that's what this, so like a weak ref is a weak reference. What does a weak reference sound like to you? Uh, when I hear that, what I first think of is uh, like doing C or C++ when you have pointers and strong reference is object in memory that has like, there's a, like a pointer is pointing to it actively. Yes. And when a pointer stops pointing to it, then it's a, there's like, the original object is weakly referenced, I think, or I'm probably getting this wrong, but I've, I haven't had to deal with this shit. In yeah, I'm, I'm asking years. some pretty academic uh, computer science type <laughs> questions here. I know yeah. uh, what what it, what the end the end result, the important part is that weak re- weakly referenced objects get picked up by garbage collection right. before strongly referenced objects, and and that's, that's the, the keyword Im- is the garbage collection. Okay. Right. So up until now, basically JavaScript didn't have this. You know, everything was strongly referenced and garbage collection just happened as best as it could, really, unless you abstracted stuff to a separate cache layer. Now you can you can actually create weak references such that when you call something with the uh, DREF uh, method, then it flags that as being dereferenced, literally like you got it. Like think of it like a one time scratch pad, right? Um Mm-hmm. What's the old uh, cryptographic approach where like you had your one sheet that you used and then once you've encoded a, a message with that, you tore that sheet off and crumpled it up and threw oh. it away. One time pad. Yeah. One time pad. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that. You create your object with weak references and reference it via the DREF method. And once your code sees that you have referenced it and you called that, it says, cool, he's done with this now. And the next time garbage collection happens, it knows I can just get rid of that. Um, This is highly dependent on your environment. JavaScript doesn't define garbage collection. Browsers define garbage collection. So it's going to be different in every environment for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, you know, that's just a, that's the computer cleaning things up at that point. So it's a little special case at that point, but, um, it's designed to help you maximize your memory efficiency and keep stuff out of the way so that you're only maintaining references to the stuff you need. Again, important in, you know, low power type environments. Uh, The finalizer goes along with this. It kind of pairs with it. And so what a finalizer does is it lets you create a register where you can assign an object to it. It's basically an event listener specific to garbage okay. collection. And the magic, the magic class here is the event registry one, right? That's uh, a finalizer registry is, fin- the, finalizer is the, registry. Yeah, the class. So you create an object instance of that and reference your object and mm-hmm. pass it the, uh, the information you want to send to it. What okay. it does is when the event happens, when garbage collection happens, and it says, oh, this object's referenced, it's in the register, I'm going to call my function 
for my finalizer registry and pass that value to it. Where this is really useful. This isn't a great tool for a production environment, but it can be really great in a development environment. If you want to track cache evictions, if you want to track performance, if you're debugging code that you're getting a lot of like undefined object references and you can't figure out why, by using that for console logging or you know logging mm -hmm. to another system or something like that, you can have it tell you, oh hey yeah oh yeah that's undefined because we you know we cleaned up that object you know forty seconds ago and here's why we did it here's the thing that called that. So you can build logging around your garbage collection to kind of see that. Very useful for development. Say, not something you're probably going to turn on for production environment, but. That's pretty, I mean, I could say that you're useful for a debugging or like reflection purposes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. This is something like weak references and finalizers are things that you are going to use if you are doing like some pretty gnarly programming. You will not you worry know what about else? this for a website. You know, you know, it's another way you would use that too. I can imagine is um, if you were doing some kind of like multitasking thing, like if you had uh, like the equivalent of running multiple programs at once on your phone, and then if you need to free up the memory from any of the things, you can have them registered, and then when you have to put them to sleep, you throw it into a serializer, and you you can you know freeze them into a, a serialized file. Yeah. The last one that is big is, is my favorite one because it's the hardest one. <laughs> and it's some new logical assignment operators. So okay. we've got, we've had stuff like the, the concatenating operator plus equals. So X plus equals one. And if you say, let, or let's back it up. You say, you know, let X equal 10. And then you say X okay. plus equals one. Then X sure. equals 11. Right. It's just designed to say, hey. Because plus equals is X equals X plus right. whatever. It's the shorthand, right? right? It's a shorthand right. way of reducing the amount of code. So Okay, I'm with you. We've got three new ones. Okay. We've got a logical and equals, which uh, when I say logical and, that's an amp like amp. And and. Ampersand, yeah. ampersand. Or ampersand, mm -hmm. ampersand. Um, you have a logical or, which is pipe pipe equals. And you have a okay. nullish, which is question mark, question mark equals. What the, okay. What the hell do these things mean? One of them. Okay. So in, in Ruby, we have similar operators. If you put um, like, or we have or equals, there's plus equals slash equals. And anything with an equals on the end is if you have a and then that, and then B, it means like, um, like slash equals means a equals a slash b, right? Um, or the or equals is a equals a or b. So what what does it mean for JavaScript? So yeah, so this is all about assigning a value to something based on some logical assessment of its value. Okay. Uh, so let's take the the truthy uh, the truthy assignment operator, which is amp amp equals. All right. So when I saw this. What I thought is like in I, I believe this actually exists in Ruby. What that would be is like a equal if you had a and equals b, it would be a equals a and b. So basically, it would be um, if you you'd have to be dealing strictly with like truthy and falsy values. So it would be like if a was true and b was false, then a would be false. 
But if A was true and B was true, then A would be true. Right. So truthy, and it's important to kind of define this, right? Truthy is any variable that's set. So it has a value of some kind. Falsy okay. is an assortment of values. So falsy could be a literal false, the word false. It could be a zero. A Boolean zero is falsy. Um, null is falsy. Undefined is falsy. Not a number, N-A-N, is falsy. Truthy okay. is, you know, is it true? Is it an empty array? You know, is it an integer? Is it a number? Is it, you know, a string of some kind? Is it a number? Um, those are all true. Truthy. Um, there's the third is nullish. Nullish is a falsy value that is specifically null or undefined only. So a square is a rectangle. A rectangle isn't always a square kind of situation with falsy and, and nullish. Um, so in the case of truthy, let's say you have let x equals 1, let y equals 2. And you say x and and equals y. What is the value of x? I say it one more time. x equals... Sorry, I've had like two glasses of tea wings now. Hey, I, you knew ahead of time there was going to be a math uh, test at the end of this, it's, so... It's not fair, I forgot. Hell, I was going to say, that's... Uh, you were warned. Let x equal 1. Let okay. y equal 2. Okay. X and and equals y. Okay. Um, X is set already. So it should stay as X? Mm, no. X. Okay. X is set. X, X is, is 1. X is truthy. Since X is truthy, oh, set it to Y. Right. So it would be two. They, they need, this needs a better name. So <laughs> truthy is... <laughs> it is what it is. So falsy yeah. is the it, opposite of that. Yeah. So in the same situation, if X or or equals Y, X is one, which isn't falsy. So as a result, right. it would stay as one. It would not get reset to two because it would only be set to two if it was blank, for instance. Right. Okay. So in in Ruby, or equals would be use or equals when you have. It's like when you have a variable and all that you care about is the variable has a value, and you would use or equals to basically give it a. If you don't know I have a value, here's a value for you. Um. So like x, so you have if you have x is one and y is two, x or equals y, x would equal one. Yeah. Um. The the shorthand stuff gets gnarly, like across the board. Um, yeah. Here's let me give you a good example of like why this matters because I the first thing mm -hmm. you're probably gonna say or anybody's gonna say looking at this is why do we need this? I can literally do this with NIF statements. Um. So here's an example, right? If I say x or or equals y, x logical or equals y, that's five bytes. Mm -hmm. X pipe pipe equal y, five bytes. Oh, you don't have to you don't have to sell me on that. I I I mean I use this kind of stuff oh, in Ruby all I know the time. You don't, I get but it. I'm trying to explain yeah. it to everybody else. I want. Oh, them. I figured they liked it already. I want them to understand. 
I want I want to I, I want to I want to show off my knowledge of of code efficiency. <laughs> so so we got a five byte statement, right? The equivalent if statement, if you do it all on one line without spaces, if parentheses x is equal to null or x is equal to undefined, close parentheses, bracket x equals y, semicolon bracket, 31 bytes. So code that takes 31 bytes, I can do with one of these logical assignment operators in five bytes. So you've reduced mm -hmm. the code size by a factor of five. So, yes, it does the exact same thing. The performance gain is probably minimal, but you do save a lot of space, and it's well. I I I like it because it, it, idiomatically, it the intention reads cleaner. Like when you have, like whenever I when I'm doing Ruby and I see like a or equals b, I know instantly what that means. I know what the intent of the of the programmer who wrote that initially, me or not was there yeah. they just they want to force they want to make sure that a has it's like safe it's like a safe assignment they want to make sure that a has a value and that's going to default to b um you want a really stupid metaphor sure why do stenographers use a shorthand typing when we have typewriters um because they have to type really fast it's an efficiency thing right like Sure. Like, yeah, obviously we could just use a normal typewriter and write everything out longhand, but they use a shorthand to be faster and more efficient. But we're doing. I guess so. Shorthand. But I, I, I could write five characters in roughly the same amount of time I could write the 30 characters, I think. It, it wouldn't be much more. I, I think that, for me at least, and, and this is as a neurodivergent person, I think that looking at, even in the JavaScript version, X and N equals Y. If I were to have an intuitive understanding of that operator better than I do right now, I would see that and I would understand that better than seeing like the longhand version yeah. of like, is X null or is it a def Because I actually have to read that. I have to read that full thing and evaluate it in my mind and then figure out, okay, what am I modeling out here? But if I just see like, oh, X question mark, question mark equals Y, got it. You know what, uh, where this keys in for me too that something I've, hmm. I've been doing a lot more of over the last couple of years is, is using things like ternary operators i don't know is, mm -hmm. does ruby have something along those lines yeah it has the same one yeah that's the same so yeah a ternary operator is just a shorthand way of setting like a the value of a variable based on a condition again mm -hmm. the exact same thing you would do with an if else basically yes a ternary is an if yeah. else but you say it in one line and the nice part about it is you can literally say, you know, let X equal and then have your ternary operator instead of doing like a let X and then if something set X equal to this else set X equal to this. You can just set X equal to your ternary operator and get the value, you know, straight out of that. It's shorthand. It's efficient. Yeah, you don't have to read through in one line. You can literally do exactly what you need instead of. Mm -hmm you know, a minimum of six. Yeah. So that's the way I, I look at these. It's it's a little gnarly. I get it. Um, there will be a lot of articles uh, in the show notes that go over all of these and have code examples of all of them. I think that's a really good way, especially 
if you're if you want to look into the weak ref uh, weak references and finalizers and the logical assignment or operators those code examples will help you immensely understand you know what those are doing and, and how they work um, some of this is available in like the latest version of node not all of it is again this is mm-hmm. not out yet it doesn't release until June so this is just your time to learn it and figure out what you need and let us know how you're going to use it in your code. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Oh. Oh. That was interesting. Education. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I find that I learn the most about things by looking at edges of like where they are and are not what they are and so i it's fun like i can get a better understanding of these concepts in javascript by like looking at them compared to other things um like and seeing the, the similarities and differences yeah. so cool stuff um you should uh come tell us thing on the social <laughs> I don't have anything better than that right now. Uh, Facebook and Twitter's.com slash drunken UX and Instagram's.com slash drunken UX podcast and also on drunkenux.com slash discord. I should just write you a script. Have a script to no. read, make it easy. No? I like I like I like the challenge of trying to remember all the things. <laughs> if you want a challenge getting in here and reading up on some of these deals and figuring out like numeric separators super easy uh <laughs> understanding logical assignment operators not nearly as easy <laughs> there yeah. some of that stuff uh man i'm my javascript skills probably the last three years have really really sharpened a lot and i'm getting a lot of mm-hmm. opportunity to work on you know, I'm refactoring a ton of my code right now for our form APIs. Um, I've committed to making sure all of our functions have JS doc references on them so I can actually generate real documentation on it. And mm-hmm. between the challenges that poses and trying to, you know, make sure I'm not pulling on threads on sweaters and unraveling like my entire code base, um, I really find that the hardest part about it is keeping my personas close. Oh. But you motherfucker. my user is closer. <laughs> Bye-bye. Oh, totally caught me on that one. <laughs>